0: would, please turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3, Exodus chapter 3, that is where we will be most of today, if not all of today. So i tell you a secret, it's not one that if you've, if you've seen me for any amount of time, you've probably picked up on this to some extent, whether you're aware of it or not, but one of the things about me that I don't like saying out loud is that I am very, very... <clears throat> insecure. And I'm constantly fighting for approval. And the reason that this is the case is because I grew, up, I grew up Adventist. I grew up with my mom working in the Florida conference as the conference secretary. So she knows everyone. And my dad worked high up in Florida, the Florida hospital system working with phones and uh, and IT. In fact, if a hurricane came through, and knocked out power. He was driving from hospital to hospital in the entire central Florida area. We sometimes wouldn't see him for days because he would just be working straight through and trying to get the hospitals back online and making sure that they can operate. And so I grew up with a lot of people knowing who I was, and by the time I entered high school, my mom had quit her job as the conference secretary and had been working at my high school already for about six years, seven years. And then... About a year before I came, she gets promoted to being the principal of the high school. So I enter a 350-400 student high school as the principal's son, which means that everything that I do is automatically seen through the lens of being the principal's son. So if I do something good, I'm a goody-two-shoes. If I do something bad, well, then I'm not living up to the standard that I'm supposed to live up to, right? But here's what would happen. I would constantly get opportunities, constantly, on campus and off campus, because people knew my mom. And it was to the point where if they knew her, they probably knew me or met me before I entered high school. And so for many, many, many times, I would be the first in line to get an interview with someone, or I wouldn't even need the interview because they knew me and I could just get the job. And people would always look at me very strangely because... Well, that's not fair. Why does he get opportunities just because who his mom is when we're over here working our tails off, trying to make things work? And constantly I would receive this criticism that you don't deserve what you've been given. And so what's happened is it's put me in this very strange state of insecurity where I constantly feel the need to prove myself in every position that I get. I can give you an example with this job right here. The ministerial director for the Carolina Conference, it, actually both of them. One of them, Haskell, used to come into my Bible classes when I was in first and second grade and read his Bible stories. And he used to work with my mom in the 90s, as did Glenn Alterman. Both of them, when I walked into my job interview, I already knew the interviewer. Now I'm not saying that that guaranteed me the job, not by any stretch of the, uh, uh, of the term, but no matter what, when they know you, it becomes easier to walk through those interviews. It becomes easier. And so I've stepped into this job feeling like I needed to prove myself from day one. And I am proud to say that in any position that I've earned through a free opportunity has come, or has, has, I've kept it because I've done a good job. I have no problem saying that, but I still always fight this insecurity to keep proving myself over and over and over again. You see, who you know matters. Because who you know may earn you opportunities. In fact, we're always more likely to hire and select people for jobs that we already know. In fact, whenever I've I've been on a leadership team thinking about selecting someone or hiring someone or bringing them on, it's always been, well, let's go through the list of people we know first, and then let's... Move on to people we don't. You see, it's partially trust and it's partially demonstrated ability. If I know you, I know what you're capable of. If I don't, it's like a mystery box, It's like a shot in the dark. It could be a favor. But we tend to favor people that we know for positions that we're hiring for. It's just how the world works, and the church is not much different in this regard. But if who you know is so important, what does that say about you? That's what I want to discuss as we open uh, open to Exodus 3. If you've ever read through the book of Genesis, which comes right before Exodus, you've probably noticed how it seamlessly transitions into Exodus. In fact, if you read Exodus on its own and start in verse 1 with absolutely no knowledge of Genesis... You might be confused and wonder why anything is significant at all that's happening to the people of Israel. You might say, this doesn't make sense. I don't get why we are here, why we are at this point. Genesis serves as an introduction to the story of Israel. Think of it like the prologue of a book. It sets the scene. It tells us where we are and why we're there. You see, Israel's origin story is found in Genesis, but its origin story as a collective people, as a nation, as, as, as God's people starts actually in Exodus, because that is where you start referring or seeing Israel referred to as my people or God's people. It's no longer talking about individuals like Abraham and Isaac and, and Jacob and Joseph. It's talking now about God's people. And so their collective story starts In Exodus, Joseph, at the end of Genesis, actually saves Egypt from famine and drought because of his God-given ability to interpret dreams and visions and his leadership to make sure that everything was taken care of. And because of this, Joseph is put as the second most powerful man in Egypt, second only to the Pharaoh himself. Exodus 1 verse 8 shows us that eventually a Pharaoh rises in Egypt who had forgotten what Joseph did. And he became afraid of the Israelites. You see, he turned them from a people that were an equal part of his kingdom into a people that would now be owned by his kingdom. He said, look at the Israelites. There's so many of them. They could rise up and take us over at any time. And so what he does is he places taskmasters over them, read slave masters over them, gives them work and makes them work. In other words, he beats them into submission. What better way to show that you are more powerful than a group of people than by flexing your muscles before they do? Catch them off guard? There's no way they can realize the power that they have. The Pharaoh would eventually order that any son born in Israel should be killed immediately but every daughter should be allowed to live. Because lineage is traced through the father, this would effectively cut off Israel's long-term survival and stunt their growth. Moses was born during this time. And instead of killing him, his mother hid him in a basket and placed him among the weeds in the river, hoping that someone else would find him and raise him. Pharaoh's daughter happens to be the one that finds Moses. And as a result of this, he is spared. And, and after Moses had grown up, one day he's walking through the city and he sees an Egyptian slave master or taskmaster, whatever term you prefer there, beating in beating a Hebrew. Beating one of his own. See, Moses is aware that he's a Hebrew. And he sees that no one is stepping in to stop this Egyptian from mercilessly beating this Hebrew, and so he steps in, shoves the Egyptian off, and in the process, kills him. And so Moses, now knowing that he's committed a crime against the very country that spared and raised him, runs. He flees to Midian, far, far away from Egypt, so that he would not suffer the consequences. And he stays there for 40 years and even gets married, While he's there. And this is where we pick up at the very end of Exodus 2, today's scripture reading Exodus 2, verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Verse 25, and I love how the English Standard Version words this, though no matter what translation you use, it's still accurate. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. The way that Gordon read it this morning, and God acknowledged them. I've preached on this word, no, before. You see, in the Hebrew language, the word for know, or the word for acknowledge that's being used here, is a form of the word "yada." This is the same word used in Genesis 1 when it says that God, or I think Genesis 1, maybe it's Genesis 2, where, where God says that Adam knew his wife Eve. In other words, the knowledge that God has regarding his people in Israel is an intimate knowledge. It is one. It's not just, oh, I see them suffering and I, and I, and I acknowledge that. I see it. Maybe should, something should be done. No, this is a knowledge that impacts his entire being. Let me give you an example. My father died on a Tuesday night. The very next morning I went to class because I figured better to be among people and friends than to be sitting in my room alone. And while sitting in one of my very first classes, it was was a college English course, my professor walks in, and she's an adjunct professor, so she didn't get any of the emails that went out to the staff saying that my father had died. And so on her way into class, she's informed, and she starts crying as she walks in the door. She calls me out of the room, and she says, Ryan, why are you here? (laughs) And then she says, do you want me to tell them, or do you want to? And I said, you can. So she walked back in the room. I sat down and, and some students started asking, why, why are you crying? Why are you crying? And she said, well, I just received some news. Ryan's father passed away yesterday. And immediately, it was like every single person in the room was punched in the gut simultaneously. You could hear everyone breathe out in shock. You could hear, and then all of their heads immediately turned to me. This wasn't a knowledge that just said, oh, Ryan's dad passed away. Okay, cool, let's get on with the lesson. This was a knowledge that when it hit them, when they learned of its truth, it affected their entire being. You could physically see them struggling to comprehend what they were being told. This is is the level that God is interacting with this knowledge. It is affecting his entire being to see that people he loves are being mistreated and groaning and crying out. And they've been crying out for 400 years. And so God finally says, it's time. This is where we pick up in verse 1 of chapter 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Verse 2, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Verse 3, And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why this bush is not burned. Verse 4, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses! And he said, here I am. I love this this picture, and and the way that that Scripture just kind of says things matter-of-factly. When have you ever walked by something, like a bug on the sidewalk or something, and said, oh, a bug, I will turn to it and see what is going on. No one self-narrates their own actions, and yet Moses sees this... Bush magically burning. He stops and says, oh look, a burning bush. I will go closer to it to see what's going on. And he walks over to it. No one does that. And yet I love that Moses does. He's so perplexed by what's happening, all he can do is say it out loud to try and get an idea of what is going on. Now look, verse, starting in verse 5, then God said, do not come near." Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. I love this too. I love this entire interaction between Moses and God. Moses sees a bush burning magically, but not not actually being consumed, and so he walks closer to it. But the second that he finds out the source of that flame is God, he turns away from it. He gets close to the fire to see what's going on. The second he finds out its source, he immediately is afraid. I find it very interesting how many of us are attracted to what God does. And we are attracted to his presence. But the second we find out it's him, we are made instantly aware of our inferiority. Of how small we are. Next to such a great being. You see, that fire symbolizes the presence of God, and Moses is automatically drawn to it. It's interesting how human nature works, here. he's drawn to this greatness and what's going on. But the second he realizes its source is something so good and so pure, he turns away. God is attractive and our own smallness, our own mistakes, and our own failures— tend to be what keep us from God. God's right there. We are the ones that often turn away. But watch this. As Moses draws his face and turns away from God out of fear and the knowledge of his smallness, God says something interesting. Verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, and the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. As Moses is retreating from God, God is declaring that he is moving closer to his people. He says, I have come down to deliver them. You see, this is the one thing that I I wish we would understand about God. God always pursues his people. God always pursues his people. And listen to me very carefully. If you want to be, you are his people. He pursues his people before they become his people. We often talk about people being a child of God, but did you know that the only way you become a child of God is by accepting Jesus? We become a child of God through adoption. Everyone is a creation of God, but not everyone is a child of God until they accept Jesus and God as their father. Everyone is being pursued by God. He doesn't just sit and wait for you to find him. He comes down to find you. And yet I find so many people saying, well, I have to clean myself up before I can go to church, before I can go to God. We have this belief, like Moses, that we aren't good enough. Yet God comes when we are at our lowest to pursue us because he loves us despite whatever insecurities and shame that we have. We are aware of our shame And we think that makes us unpursuable and unlovable. But God sees the me through my shame. And he pursues me endlessly. God is pursuing his people. And God is pursuing you because he loves you. So how long will you turn your face away like Moses? As if there is anything that God would let stand in the way and stop him from pursuing you. Now watch verses 9 and 10. God is still talking. He says, And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Verse 10, come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Not only does God pursue Moses, he shows up right where Moses is, not only does he pursue Moses, He also calls Moses. God has a much bigger purpose for everyone that he pursues. See, this isn't just a matter of God trying to get you into a relationship with him. God is calling you to more than what you are experiencing now. But I want you to pay close attention to this. Not everyone gets the calling of Moses. In fact... While Moses was called to be Moses, there are 600,000 Israelites called to just be Israelites and to be the best Israelites that they possibly can be. Not everyone gets this amazing or seemingly amazing call. I say seemingly amazing because if you read Moses' story, I do not envy the man. (laughs) Not in any way, shape, or form do I envy the man. Other than that, it would be really cool to walk up to a sea and watch it split. But the 600,000 Israelites got to see that too. See, not everyone gets the calling of Moses, but everyone gets a calling. And sometimes your calling is to simply stay exactly where you are, but approach it with a brand new perspective. Approach it with a brand new joy, because maybe the new joy that you walk into work with could be the very thing that shows Jesus to your co Sometimes our calling is to be the very best we can in the place that we are. But make no mistake, when God pursues, he also calls. Now listen, you know Moses' story. You know what's happened, right? He's killed an Egyptian. He's fleed for 40 years from punishment, afraid to face the consequences of his actions If I'm Moses, this is what I'm hearing as God calls me. I've spent 40 years here, God. I've made a life for myself and finally put my past and my mistakes behind me. Why are you going to call me back there? Surely there's got to be another way. There's got to be someone else. Anyone else. Here, take one of my sheep. Maybe they can do it. He's saying anyone else but me. You expect me, a fugitive, to just walk in there and say, hey, Pharaoh, do me a quick favor and release 600,000 people with absolutely no trade back. You expect a fugitive to return to the country he wronged, and you expect that country's leader to listen to him. See, God, I know everything that you, I know you created everything, but I worry that you don't really have a grasp of how things actually work down here. Typically, when a fugitive enters the country they're a fugitive in, they get arrested and no one listens to them. I mean, look at what Moses says in verse 11. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. Who am I? This isn't a question born of Moses trying to establish or figure out his identity. When Moses asks this question, he knows exactly who he is. This question is a statement of disagreement with God. It acknowledges that Moses is completely Unqualified to do this. And he acknowledges how ridiculous this sounds. He's acknowledging how scared he is, how aware of his smallness he is. God, who am I that I should do this? Don't you know what I've done? And listen to how God responds. Verse 12. God said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. God does not deny any of Moses' identity. He he says this, because I, I find this interesting, that when God replies to people, you can find a lot of truth in what he doesn't say. And how he just kind of ignores what they say and keeps going with what he intended to say. Because the beauty in what God says here is in what he doesn't say. He completely ignores God or <coughs> Moses' identity and he says, look, I know exactly who you are. And I know exactly what you've done. But none of it matters here. Because I'm God and I'm bigger than all of it. That's what I will be with you says. If you're trying to comfort someone and you say I will be with you, you better be the person most qualified to take the pressure off. And that's exactly what God says. I don't care how small you are because I will be with you and I make up the difference. This is what Moses needs to grasp. It's not who he is that matters. It's who is on his side. God even further establishes this reasoning by giving Moses the script to follow to establish what authority he has to do what he is doing. Look at verse 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. In other words, from the get-go, he's telling Moses, do not go on your own authority. You did not send yourself. You did not decide to do this on your own. I am the one that sends you. Go under my authority. I will be with you. We live in a society right now that establishes your worth as a human being based on what you can contribute to society. This means that we all walk around with some lingering questions. What if I'm not good enough? What if what I have to offer isn't good enough? This is why relationships ending hurt so much. This is why firings hurt so much. Why rejection Hurts so much. Obviously, there are always other factors at play. But when you are rejected, it indicates that someone somewhere thinks that you are not good enough. So it's not just guilt we feel in these moments of sadness. It's shame. It's that voice creeping in that whispers, you aren't good enough and you never Will be. You aren't pretty enough, smart enough, talented enough, slim enough, dressed well enough. You will never accomplish your dreams because you can't accomplish your dreams. Christianity and our relationship with God completely flies in the face of this. Because God doesn't establish our worth based on what we can contribute. God establishes our sense of worth based on his love for us. Something completely separate, compartmentalized from everything we do. And John tells us that God is love. We talk about gravity being a force that only can attract. Gravity only pulls things together. From what we know of it, Gravity does not cause things to be pushed apart. Perhaps momentum from pulling something in may fling it far, but ultimately gravity only attracts, it does not pull. That is the essence of what gravity uh, does not push. That is the essence of what gravity is. But God is love. That is the essence of who he is. Meaning that when God says he loves you, he is declaring the essence of who he is over your life. He is declaring that you are valuable and meaningful because of who he is. And he can do nothing else. Who am I that God could love me? Who am I that God could love me? See, as you draw closer to who God is, you start to see who you have been. And that's the question I've heard everyone ask. In one way, shape, or form, who am I that God would love me? The answer is simple. It doesn't matter who you are. God loves you anyway. God doesn't care about what you've done because he can take care of that. God cares about who you are and where you are going. And who you will become. He does not care about who you were other than to free you from it. God pursues you, God calls you, and God loves you. Why? Because that's who He is. But you and I have been so conditioned to think that we earn things, that we get things by reward, quid pro quo. We have to prove ourselves. And I'm preaching just as much to me as I am to anyone in this room. Because this turns everything into a competition. We are all competing and co-workers, friends, and family all become our competition in a contest of worth. And if I can tear you down with my words or my actions, then you won't be a threat to my own. If I can show and if I can demonstrate that you are worth less than I am, then I will be okay. Because based on what I can do and what I can contribute, I am better than you if I can prove that you are worse than me. This is what the world tries to do. And all too often I watch it creep into the church as I watch members talk about each other behind their backs, as I watch gossip take place, or as I watch um, a lack of belief in each other, this idea, I can do it better. But true Christianity transcends all of that because it doesn't even work with that system. It's a completely different system. We are invited by God, by His pursuing, His calling, and His loving, to participate in a system which determines your worth by God's being, not your doing. Your worth is determined by God's being, not your doing. And it doesn't matter what you've done. Pornography, drugs, alcohol. I don't care. It does not matter what you've done. It only matters who God is. But whenever we treat each other in ways that says that we value our actions more than God's love, then we are rejecting God's system in favor of the world's. You were loved, you were pursued, and you were called long before you made any mistakes. Long before you sinned at all. And you were loved, pursued, and called long after them. And the best part, there's absolutely nothing that you can do to change it. You can try all you want, but God loves you because he says he does. Because that's who he is. And there's nothing that you can do to change that. Even those who do not accept Christ at the very end of time are still loved by God. And because he loves them, he honors their choice. To choose something other than him. God's love follows you wherever you go. It pursues you endlessly. And it calls you into something so much more than you've ever been. And the more that you retreat, the more that you cover your face, the more that he pursues, he does not give up. And sometimes it takes something that completely ruins your day, completely messes up your schedule. I imagine that Moses had somewhere to be. And yet in the middle of this day, suddenly a bush lights up and he's got to figure out what in the world is going on. So I'm hoping that if you've been in a place where you've been ragging on yourself and being hard on yourself because of your insecurity or because of your lack of self-worth or because someone else tells you that you aren't good enough, then I hope today can be an encouragement for you. That you are good enough because God says you are. And God has so much more for you in store than anything this world has to offer.